Well, hello and welcome to another episode of National Review's Capital Record. I am your host, David Bonson, and I am loving the fact that we get to bring on another first-time guest to Capital Record. We've had a few repeat guests this year so far, including some of my very favorite episodes we've ever done. I'll take this opportunity to say if you haven't listened to some of the episodes we did earlier in the year, uh, we've got a lot of feedback on my talk with Lacey Hunt about the Fed and about uh, inflation and deflation. We, we've gotten an awful lot of uh, conversation around my talk with Rusty Reno on the role of the state in the markets and where uh, the sort of moral dimension of markets comes in to some of our current debates. Um, but the guest I'm bringing on today is a gentleman by the name of Derek Kreifels, who is the CEO of the State Financial Officers Foundation. And this topic really overlaps with a guest I had a couple of weeks back now, uh, Jerry Boyer. I had him on, I believe, for the third time since we started this podcast. And it was related to the issues of shareholder activism, shareholder engagement. What Derek is doing is different in the sense that his uh, organization exists to equip those in a public finance uh, authority, um, a public finance responsibility. They're working as treasurers or, or some aspect of financial officers on behalf of states and 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 you know uh, public uh, you know financial oversight that um, need to be aware of what's going on, need to have tools and policy suggestions and and ge general awareness around the great debates of our day. I I'll leave it there because I want Derek to be able to explain it better um, and and give you kind of the the overall summary of how he got into this and what they're looking to do. But it is a sort of two-pronged attack, similar to what I was talking about with Jerry Boyer a couple weeks ago. Uh, shareholder engagement and um, utilizing corporate finance uh, to absolutely have marketplace ideas that represent the goals of a free and virtuous society is on the table. We do not need to be in retreat mode. We can be in engagement mode. And today's guest represents a wonderful tool towards the idea of engagement. Let me bring on Derek Kreifels. So with that said, allow me to welcome yet again another first-time guest to the Capitol Record, Derek Kreifels. Derek, welcome to Capitol Record. Thank you, David. It's great to be here with you. So I purposely avoided uh, giving a whole lot of detail in the introduction about what you're up to and, and what you're doing, because I wanted you to just maybe start by giving kind of a high-level introduction to the listeners. Tell, tell us a little bit what the State Financial Officers Foundation is all about. Sure. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk to your listeners. Um, the State Financial Officers Foundation, or SFOF, we like to call it, uh, is a nonprofit organization that was started um, that I started with a few other state treasurers about 10 years ago um, in an effort to really um, organize in a way that we could educate Americans on issues of public finance with an unapologetically free market bin. Um, <clears throat> we recognized at the time that many times the federal government was unable to accomplish a whole lot, uh, hasn't changed much today. 
um, and that the states were really where the action was. Um, many times things get passed or regulatory agencies uh, create new laws, new rules for these states to uh, function under, and they don't fully understand the implications of those rules and the laws and the impact that they have on taxpayers. And so um, we uh, decided to create an organization that would really help bring uh, those folks together with the members of the private sector. Um, we work to advance new free market solutions for uh, a myriad of public finance issues, including now the big one uh, that we're pushing back and have been fighting against for the last year and a half, uh, all things ESG, environmental social governance investing. So tell me, give me an example. When you say that there are laws that get passed in public finance that some of the state financial officers don't understand and you're there to help around that, what's an, what's an example of types of things where laws are getting passed and there's stuff getting kind of lost in translation? Well, I would say not that the state financial officers don't understand. It's that um, let's say that, you know, back during the Obama administration, there was the creation of the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, um, as, a, as what I would consider an overreaction to the 2008 financial crisis and, and situation, um, you know, where, uh, you know, an, the over, an overreaction where the um, world's credit markets uh, collapse and they treat it with uh, uh, restrictions on ATM fees. That's right. ATM fees, yeah. credit card disclosures. So let's say the CFPB recommends an additional credit card disclosure, credit card disclosure statement um, for all consumers. Um, you know what we what we take that as on our end is you know that's one more thing that we have to educate our state citizens about because at the end of the day it's not the banks that are going to pick up the tab for that extra disclosure, that extra piece of bureaucratic whatever. Uh, it's, it's the consumers that are going to be paying higher fees. Um, and so it's, it's those kinds of things. You know, when, when President Trump was in office uh, and he was working on the Tax Act, he had state treasurers at the table uh, to talk about the SALT deduction and, and ways that, um, you know, the, the items in his tax plan were going to directly impact uh, state taxpayers. And so that's kind of what we're there for. These men and women are on the front lines of their state financial situations and see exactly how these uh, different initiatives, different uh, laws that get passed have an impact. Um, and we're there to raise the red flag when something isn't quite right. And, and so the um, regulatory environment creates, there's this always uh, evolving set of regulations, rules, laws, and then you guys become a resource. But I assume the people that want your resources are like-minded. Um, yeah, I would say most of them are. They, they're uh, like-minded state financial officers. So these are state treasurers, auditors, comptrollers. I would say that um, I, I would say a majority of citizens in these states are, are like-minded as well. They, they want what's done right with their taxpayer dollars. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I don't think that makes them necessarily conservative or liberal. I think that um, most people just see good financial management as good common sense. Um, and so we tend to be uh, on the side of the people uh, majority of the time. Well, and that's and that's the beauty of it. As I learn more about your your model, that um, it's really not political advocacy. And if, uh, in theory, a blue state voter who is um, totally of a different ideological persuasion than, let's say, I am or or many of the people listening to the podcast 
they still benefit from the work you're doing because you're pursuing greater fiscal implementation and execution yeah. at the state level where technically they are fiduciaries of public assets. And David, I'll give you a great example of that last year. When we saw the, the U.S. Treasury Department toying around with this idea of monitoring inflow and outflows of, of citizen bank accounts of $600 or more inflow or outflow, um, when we started talking about that issue and, and what an affront to uh, you know our, our way of life, our financial way of life here in America that that would have been, um, we had calls from both extreme, you know, you know, conservative folks that didn't want the government to know how much ammunition that they buy in a month uh, to the folks on the left, not wanting the government to know how much pot that they're buying in a month. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, it was a real diverse audience saying, you know, we don't want the IRS snooping in our bank accounts. Um, you know, tr we pay our taxes. We're honest Americans. Um, and they have no business, you know, monitoring every, you know, $600 or more transaction coming in or out. Um, that was and therein lies the rub. It's them having no business. Not uh, As someone who didn't buy any ammo or pot last month, <laughs> I don't want the government knowing how many books I bought last month. That's right. Or that you bought a new refrigerator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's the, the boredom uh, that should be achieved from people knowing what I do with my money. And yet the point being that there was this egregious, and it's funny, you said bank accounts. If I remember correctly, they were talking, they were defining bank accounts to include Venmo and Zelle and other electronic payments processors. Actually, actually some of that did pass. Um, that, yeah. that, you know, some of the, the PayPal and Venmo account stuff, if, you know, if people are doing all cash business, um, bad news, uh, the government can now, you know, get those transactions from Venmo and other, uh, other companies like as part of the IRS regulation, right? This is it, it coded as a tax enforcement thing. So I could be wrong, but the people that have said to me, I'm really uncomfortable with this, um, are, you know, I use a car service a lot in New York and my drivers want me not, you know, putting in the detail of the memo, right? I don't think Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are getting paid on Venmo a lot for their various services. So it would sure seem to me that their intention here is very downstream and very regressive in yeah. terms of tax enforcement. Yeah, I mean, let's face it, you're gonna hire 87,000 new tax agents to go after the the 3% of the wealthiest in America? Give me a break. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. mean, it's a, such a farce. And you know, we've just heard recently that they have a new program set up to go after those that are, are, are the servers and the waiters and waitresses uh, that are uh, tip earners, you know, yeah. to better be able to track. I mean, these are not upper class, you know, they're not high paying jobs. They're not, you know, these are working Americans that are trying to make it, you know, these are mo working moms that are working two and three jobs. And, uh, and, you know, Biden's IRS is going after them. Yeah, it's really outrageous. And in a lot of ways, that was sort of how some of these things were presented is that they work for a lower hourly wage because there are certain tax efficiencies around in a being in a cash business and whatnot. And and I, I, I actually think one of the more challenging parts, there's some that would say, nope, even that bartender or busboy should be paying their fair share. But see, nobody on the left would say that. Right. Biden wouldn't say that. 
And so if you're not going to raise taxes on lower middle class wage earners, then you and yet you're going to increase this enforcement to almost draconian and maybe even Orwellian yeah. measures. Um, I think you owe it to American people to say so. So you you when you guys point some of this out to some of the state financial officers in your network, obviously what we're talking about here in this example is more federal and treasury oriented. But um, is there a good, um, tell me what that feedback loop is like in terms of communication with those in your network? Yeah. So, um, well, first, let me let me back up and say that, you know, one of the reasons why we work so effectively with these state treasurers, state auditors, uh, you know, folks like Texas Comptroller Glenn Hager, uh, CFO Jimmy Patronis in Florida, um, is that we, we backed up and did a poll several years ago, and we just asked a simple question to citizens in about 14 states. Who do you trust more with your money, your governor, your state treasurer, or your member of Congress? Um, and the lowest that a state treasurer got was 60%. Governor had 20 to 25%, depending on his or her popularity. And the member of Congress, unfortunately, was in the tank, regardless of party. Um, and so we know that the people end up, they trust their state treasurer for better or for worse, uh, regardless of party, when it comes to issues of, of finance, of public finance and, and with their tax dollars. So when we provide them with the tools that they need to make educated decisions, um, they, they go into action. This group of state treasurers, these men and women um, that are state auditors and treasurers across the country right now, they're doing really amazing work. Everything from you know, divesting from BlackRock to working with their legislatures on model policy, uh, to help uh, ensure that ESG is not being used as a factor in their state pension funds uh, so that they can focus solely on the fiduciary responsibility of bringing the best return for the money. Um, you know, we've seen a, a state treasurer from North Carolina, Dale Falwell, call for Larry Fink's resignation. Um, and so, you know, they are, they're, these are fighters. They're, they are, uh, they're action takers. They're not talkers. Um, and, uh, and so we just have a great group of, of folks right now that, again, when we see that we provide the right information, the right tools, they take the appropriate action, uh, what they see fit and, and best for their state. Do you um, consider what you guys are doing advocacy or is it more informational and allowing them to apply the information? Or are you making recommend, like, would, are you saying to state financial officers, Derek, we recommend you boycott BlackRock? Um, we, are, we are saying that these are a menu of options that you have at your disposal. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we certainly are educating them uh, for first and foremost about the responsibilities of the office that they have and their, the, the abilities that they have within the scope of their laws of what they can and they can't do. Um, you know, BlackRock, let's face it, they are the, the you know, 10 trillion pound gorilla and, uh, and they are the ones uh, calling a lot of the shots. And so, um, you know, I think there was, it was not uh, us that had to really convince any state treasurer that uh, when they looked at, you know, put two and two together, saw that BlackRock and Larry Fink's push to shareholders uh, for stakeholder capitalism you know, was something that they found very alarming and wanted to fight against. Um, and so I think it just took one state treasurer, you know, West Virginia Treasurer Riley Moore a year ago, uh, divested just around a, a billion and a half dollars from 
their treasury funds from BlackRock. And that really started a domino effect. Now today, we're over $5 billion divested from eight states, um, which isn't a big amount of money in the grand scheme of things when you consider they still are worth about $8 trillion. But the bottom line is, uh, we've got their attention. We've got other corporations like them and their attention. And, uh, and BlackRock's defending themselves. You know, they're running a multi-million dollar ad campaign on Fox News. I see it a, about three times an hour saying how great and warm fuzzy they are for the American people. Um, and so we know- well, And, and um, even though it hasn't trickled down to the, you know, just for listeners sake, they're, they're, we talk about $8 trillion asset management firm. And in the real world, if one is actively managing monies, right? They're collecting monies from accounts like a pension fund, like a rich Mr. and Mrs. Smith or what have you, you know, if you're managing uh, hundreds of billions of dollars, you're a huge asset manager. The way in which their number gets to the trillions was because they bought the iShares business out of the financial crisis from Barclays, which is the large British bank that owned it. And then iShares itself, which was the largest suite of ETFs, exchange-traded funds, exploded inside. They were already a very large business, and they've just exponentially grown in the decade that's followed. So it sort of pads BlackRock's numbers a lot. You, you used to be able to guess what the revenue was if you knew the assets because you could assume they were getting somewhere between 25 and 50 basis points of management fees but the reality is a lot of those assets pay them a couple basis points, you know, and that's particularly true at a Vanguard, let's say, that does a lot of low cost indexing. So regardless, the controversy, the reason I'm setting this up to pat this back, to, to, to swing this back to Derek is that the proxies on these shares uh, for these large ETF ownerships has, has belonged to them. That's first a sort of structural uh, inconvenience because the underlying shares aren't owned by Mr. and Mrs. Smith, small investor. And yet people, you know, in theory could say, why is this other entity voting the shares when the beneficial ownership does belong to the little guy? But then it really became a problem, not just because the little guy wasn't voting the shares, who candidly wasn't going to be voting them anyways, as Jerry Boyer and I just talked about a couple weeks ago on the podcast but rather because Larry Fink decided to go public saying he was going to flex his muscle and use his voting power of other people's beneficially owned shares um, to implement ESG and DEI and a whole host of other um, agendized items. So then he, in a lot of ways, caused the problem because he drew attention to what was a sort of structural mishap uh, that really only pissed people off because of what he was doing. And here we are. So that's the setup behind some of that BlackRock asset issue. But now you can go and stay to state financial officers. One option may be to not designate money there. I do think that BlackRock's capitulating on vote on voting for at least institutional business for now yeah. is a really good sign that the pressure is working. It, it, it's, a, it's more than a symbolic victory to um, dis in, uh, disempower Larry Fink to even that degree. Yeah, and we are, we're encouraging our states that uh, where the treasurer or the auditor or the comptroller sits as a, as a board member of their state pension boards, you know, we're encouraging those state offices, 
to be sure that the state votes their shares. Uh, yeah. That they don't allow that duopoly of ISS and Glass Lewis to, you know, uh, just blindly follow BlackRock's lead and and do what they say, do what they want, uh, but that they actively vote their shares. The problem that we have with that, David, is that there are some state treasurer's offices that have, you know, eighteen thousand employees, and there's some state treasurer's office that have eight employees, um, and so you know, the resources are are not there and available for every state to know the uh, the thousands of share, you know, of the shareholder proposals to understand each one of them. And so fortunately, the the movement, the conservative movement is working to to address some of that. I think, um, you know, we're seeing some free market solutions from, you know, from Vivek Ramaswamy's company, Strive Asset Management to, you know, a, a couple of other uh, uh, folks like Jerry Boyer and others that are creating solutions that allow um, states to have, you know, another source for recommendations on some of those shareholder, uh, you know, proxy votes. Um, and so we we feel like that's um, going to be really vital. Some states have already done some little things. Uh, Idaho, for example, Treasurer Julie Ellsworth uh, worked with her legislature last season to just simply make sure that all the proxy votes are put on a public website on her state treasurer's website just for transparency's sake, um, which, you know, doesn't sound like much, but I think that is a, a great first step and just really alerting the public that, hey, your pension dollars might be being used to help advance, you know, a, a pro-choice, pro-abortion agenda or a yeah. you know, anti-Second Amendment agenda or, a, you know, climate DEI or DEI related agenda, whatever it is. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And in that case, were they posting what the item is or were they actually posting how they're voting? They're, they have to do both, I believe. I believe it's how they vote and, uh, and, and what the item was. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a step in the right direction. And, and a lot of this comes down to even individual investors. And this was something that um, Jerry Boyer and I just talked about on this very podcast recently. Increasing awareness you know, that there's a sense in which what you guys are doing with public finance is so vital because if, if some of us are going to be upset about what's going on out there with public financial dollars, we have an obligation to back up our emotions with understanding, with facts, with yeah. knowledge, with information, with perspective, and sometimes with decisions. And it, on the individual side, shareholders, it's so easy to say, I'm mad at Larry Fink but it's harder to go to a shareholder meeting or it's harder right. to vote your own proxies or it's harder to do the homework to know some of the crazy things that they may be thinking about. And I agree. A lot of people are busy. I happen to think most public bureaucrats are a little less busy than they pretend to be, but either way they need resources like what you guys are doing to provide the information. And, and because this is public finance, it's not just for the sake of their own portfolio and the sake of their own worldview that they get more informed, which would be the case for you or me or Jerry Boyer, but for the sake of their constituents, whom they have a fiduciary duty to. That's right. And so anything that is drawing more awareness and transparency can only be for the better, I would think. What are, what are some of the low-hanging fruits you see right now? Um, organizationally, are, are would you advance your cause more with greater signups, greater participation of state financial officers, 
or it, just digging deeper with the ones you already have? What's kind yeah. of your your tactical approach? Yeah, I would say two on on two fronts. Uh, the first one is that we we launched an educational campaign about eight weeks ago called Our Money, Our Values. Um, folks can find that at ourmoneyourvalues.com. Uh, and it's simply designed to be an education campaign to Main Street Americans on what ESG investing really is and what it really does. There's a great four and a half minute educational primer video on there uh, that folks can watch. There's a 60 second version of it if they don't feel like they have enough time. Uh, but there's a lot of great information on there. One of the things we're asking for is for stories. If you're a small business owner or a farmer or somebody that's being negatively impacted by ESG, we want to hear about it. Um, we want to bring these stories to the forefront of the, the conversation as we begin to start to move in, uh, you know, to the next presidential cycle. Um, and, and we want all the leaders on both sides of the aisle to know how important uh, this issue is to, to Americans. Um, I'll give you a quick example. We just heard from a, a, a family that uh, has a catering company. Um, they happen to cater directly to folks in oil fields uh, and, and provide meals for those workers. Um, the commercial insurer that has insured that company for multiple years has threatened to pull their insurance policy because of their mission scope uh, directly related to the oil industry. Um, we've heard of uh, you know power plant operators that have a fleet of 3000 vehicles unable to get insurance uh, because of the business that they're in, coal-fired power plants, um, you know, and so so this movement really is trying to constrict, um, you know, all industries. So that's that's the first front is that we're really trying to engage with the American public. I'd say the other um, the other thing is that we are working with multiple organizations um, over the last year. We helped develop model policy that we think are two pieces that are really good ideas. One that just strengthens the idea of the fiduciary rule. Uh, in a state that may not have that in statute that just simply says you can't dis use any other pecuniary factors, um, any political factors in making financial decisions when it comes to state tax dollars or state pension dollars. Um, another model policy evolves around this idea of, of anti-discrimination. So, uh, you know, where, for example, West Virginia, Treasurer Riley Moore works with his legislature to pass a law that says if you're a bank and you want to do business in the state of West Virginia um, and you have a policy that says you will no longer lend to coal because it's coal, not because it's a bad business deal, not because, you know, they don't have the right credit, you know, backing or, or uh, the right experience or history, but just because of who they are, we feel like that's discriminatory towards these states, some of these states' key signature industries. And, um, and so it's those types of model policies that we're seeing pushed in multiple states where state treasurers are getting taking an active role in helping to shepherd some of those pieces of legislation are very different in each state, depending on uh, the way that the state works. Um, but we're seeing the bankers push hard back against this. Um, you know, they're they are they're feeling very threatened. Um, you know, they have blindly the some of the largest banks in America have blindly walked lockstep with BlackRock and joined the Global Financial Alliance for Net Zero, um, part of the Climate Action 100 uh, Glasgow Accords movement that comes from the United Nations and, and the European pension community. Um, and, 
you know, a lot of our states are basically saying, look, if that's where your allegiance lies, we don't want any part of your you to be able to do business for our state. Um, Kentucky. I think, I think it's important, though, to point out, first of all, that Vanguard had to back up, back out of that. That's commitment. And that's largely from the pressure that the others, the good guys have exerted. And I believe UBS may have uh, capitulated on that as well. Um, US, Bank. U.S. Bank did. U.S. Bank. I'm sorry, USB. But but um, that when when you talk about a state like West Virginia, and if there's a, a Wall Street bank that has said we're no longer going to lend to the coal industry, um, and in some cases they're you know they're saying they don't want to lend to the fossil industry, and yet they have asset management arms too. And so West Virginia has some leverage because they can say, we're not going to invest money with your asset management arm if somewhere else in your parent organization, you're acting in a discriminatory manner against an industry that's very important to jobs and well and economic well-being in our state. So that sounds like we're playing a little hardball, right? The thing people have to understand is this is absolutely necessary to counteract what these firms are getting on the other side. Because before West Virginia tells J.P. Morgan, you better lend to coal, Jamie Dimon's going to Congress and AOC is telling him, you better not lend to coal. That's right. And, and so in a lot of ways, I'm not trying to paint the Wall Street firms as innocent bystanders. Some of them have really been firm and strong and good. Some of them have been cowardly. But they are stuck between a rock and a hard place. And they need to know that they're stuck that they're not just getting the pressure from the left, but that there is a economically pragmatic counteract if they go the way of the coward. Absolutely, and and they are, and and most of the companies in America that are that are engaged in this public financial space are are simply stuck in the middle. They they are getting the pressures from you know this administration. Uh, and and the folks from the UN and and you know if you want to do business with European pensions you have to be X Y Z and have to have this right ESG statement on your website and so on and so forth um, and and we get that I speak to many executives in in uh, several C suites from uh, all kinds sizes of companies and the one thing that they've all said is uh, it's about time or thank you. <laughs> for giving us some kind of leverage to say, well, now we have pushback coming from the other side too. It took the conservative movement way too long to kind of catch up to figure out exactly how the left was utilizing this whole ESG scam to really advance their leftist policies now that they know that they aren't able to get it done in Congress and they can't get it passed in the courts. Um, and this is their their new uh, MO. Um, and so... Uh, you know, we we do recognize that. And frankly, again, you know, we're primarily concerned not with what the, a private company decides to do. Uh, if, you know, they the, the thing that we hear the most is, well, we have customers that want it. That's great. Give it to them if you want to. Just don't put that in turn in involve. Don't intermingle that with anything related to taxpayer funds or state pension funds. That's our big argument, because at the end of the day, we're not here to argue climate change. We're not here to argue abortion rights. We're here to argue fiduciary responsibility. And as the, as state treasurers and auditors, that's their primary role is just to make darn sure that the money is there, that the best returns are being gained for those pensioners and taxpayers at the end of the day. And so um, 
it, you bring up an important point, and I think I know your answer, but it'd be helpful to clarify. Your when you point out some of the companies doing business with the CCP, the Communist Chinese Party, the intent there is not to say please ban Alibaba from your portfolio. It's to point out the hypocrisy of saying you're not going to deal with Exxon, but you will deal with the Chinese Communist Party. Absolutely. And and so your perspective is more that you would appreciate them having some form of ideological objectivity, not the hypocrisy. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely that. Uh, but I would say too, some of this is coming directly from China. I mean, we know that that part of the United Nations that that really got this initiative going were because uh, China was chair of, of the right committees that really helped introduce ESG. In fact, some folks in the movement are starting to call it the, the Chinese ESG agenda, um, which I think is actually uh, spot on. Um, you know, we hear the Wharton School, you know, push back against all the BlackRock divestment with the millions of dollars in fees. Um, what what that Wharton School is not, not sharing with you is that you know, they received a $30 million investment from China for the ESG initiative that they promote. So, you know, there, there's a lot of hypocrisy, but there, but let's, ESG is just another Trojan horse in this country right now for the CCP. And, and it's, uh, it's become clearer as time goes on that the more that, that we get driven into this ESG investing hole, uh, it, it really hurts America, not only from a fossil fuel perspective, but from some of the, the mineral mines, the richest, you know, the mines around the world that a majority are controlled and ran and owned and operated by the CCP. Um, and so they would love nothing more than for us to continue down this road to hurt ourselves and be dependent on them for some of these things. I think that there's an effort as of late, it seems to me, whether it's organized or just sort of grassroots to be a little more rhetorically aware um, uh, about the mineral mine uh, ramifications and to not only be talking about oil and gas all the time. I've always thought that people not starving to death and freezing to death was important enough, but it does seem to kind of go down to a more um, democratic ramification when you diversify the impact of the war on fossil into mineral mines. But where I think we could do even better than minerals, which still seems, I think, to some people a little esoteric, is the petrochemical and, and the reality that people's cosmetics and their handbags and the day-to-day the -day products, you know, for people who are driving an electric vehicle and think they don't need fossil fuels in their life, um, to understand the day-to-day -day products and I'm surprised we haven't done a better job messaging that because it's really low-hanging fruit yeah. for how badly we are dependent on um, crude and particularly natural gas liquids in the petrochemical side of uh, everyday product usage. Well, I will give kudos uh, where they're deserved. You know, one organization that's done great work on that front, David, is the Texas Public Policy Foundation, yeah. an organization yeah. called Life Powered uh, with Jason Isaac. Um, you know, they have a great video that literally demonstrates from the moment that you wake up, the moment that you just get to work, all of the various, you know, chemical products that are, are related to the fossil fuel industry. But I want to push back on one thing. You know, I think that I think that most Americans are sympathetic when you do talk about these mines and, and the, the forced labor, the child labor that's being used. There's a great new book out. I forget the author's name, uh, Cobalt Red. 
Uh, it's about the slave labor, uh, these children in, in Africa that are being used to mine the cobalt that powers, you know, everybody's Tesla. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important to, uh, as, as, you know, the left has, has talked about human rights and, and, you know, things like that. It's, it's another level of hypocrisy to not bring the, the CCP's violation of human rights, the, uh, the, the, the human rights violations that's happening every day in order to support the electric vehicle industry uh, from these cobalt mines. Um, and, uh, and again, uh, life-powered Texas public policy, they're doing a great job of, of demonstrating that as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think at the, you know, most of our men and women are concerned about that. Um, you know, we see um, BlackRock, you know, maneuvering every chance they get to do more business in China. You know, that's their play uh, is to, to appease the CCP um, and, and to be able to build a new retail audience uh, for, for their bottom line. And that's just, in our mind, it's, it's un-American. So is there um, a particular revenue model in terms of those engaging with your organization? Is it largely donor-driven? Do the financial officers that become members of your organization, or is there a dues-based approach? How, how does the organization function? No, we don't take any taxpayer dollars uh, to, to our, fund our organization. We are all private donor-funded. Uh, we do have some, we do have some corporate partners. Um, we also have a lot of, uh, just great friends that, uh, believe in the cause and help us. Um, and so, uh, the treasures don't pay a dime. The States don't pay a dime for them to join. Uh, we simply ask them to agree to a set of, uh, basic principles and, um, then they, they come and get to be a part of what we're doing and, and receive, uh, some of the great information and data that we provide them. And so that website is SFOF, State Financial Officers Foundation, SFOF.com. The other website I'm going to put in the show notes is OurMoneyOurValues.com. And it's really a quite succinct and, and simple summary of just kind of telling the story about ESG and why people should care. And, and so on the, the State Financial Officers front. Um, the people joining are reasonably sympathetic, but then they're getting resources, information, there's uh, organization. What is the um, network like? Are, 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 is somebody in Florida able to network with someone in South Dakota and, and share best practices? And is there a sense in which your organization is serving as sort of a, a hub for like-minded uh, fiscal um, you know, those committed to their proper fiduciary duty? Absolutely. Um, we have 35 state officials from 28 states that make up our membership right now. Um, and we do, we host two national meetings annually uh, that are by invitation only. And it gives those members uh, an opportunity to be together, uh, to talk about, you know, model policy, to talk about other issues uh, in regards to public finance. Um, that they want to visit or, you know, pay, give some attention to. Um, a lot of them do get ideas from one another. Um, we've really done a great job of building, uh, a, building a network of friendships. Uh, a lot of these men and women know each other, their spouses know each other, um, and they enjoy uh, being together. Um, we also do have some virtual meetings throughout the year that give uh, opportunity to hear about other issues that might be more timely. Um, but we are, we're very active. We're all very engaged with each other. 
Um, and uh, and it's uh, it's a great group of, of men and women who are, frankly, a lot of them are future leaders, uh, future federal leaders. There's um, a lot of our treasurers now. We have a some alumni. Uh, we have Eric Schmidt, who's the U.S. Senator now from Missouri. We have the governor of Wyoming, Mark Gordon, uh, Congressman Ron Estes from Kansas, um, uh, Congressman Jake LaTurner from Kansas, uh, all former state treasurers, um, Mississippi Attorney General uh, Lynn Fitch uh, that was instrumental in the in the Roe versus Wade uh, overturning case last year, uh, was state treasurer of Mississippi. Uh, so we've had a history of some very um, some some great leaders who have stepped up to serve in bigger ways. And and frankly, we anticipate that there will be more of that. And so when you're referring to them as alumni, they're alumni because they were in a position in a state financial office, were part of your organization, and now they're no longer in that state role. They may have moved on to something else or they're term ended. That's correct. Um, or something to that effect. Yes. Yeah. It is, it's an impressive group, and and I actually think I mean that in two ways. It's um, impressive that you're able to equip and educate and and resource that group, but it's also impressive that they are so serious about their jobs that they're willing to join an organization like yours and and become uh, more equipped and more resourced. Um, that 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 to me is half the battle. Is that these guys and gals that work in some of these public finance positions need to take seriously the moment. Yeah. And it, it's hard to get them equipped if they're not in a position of listening. Well, and when you're a down ballot state state officer, you're often forgot about when it comes to different yeah. briefings and stuff. So we've just, we've tried to build a network of folks that can provide the latest and greatest information so that, you know, if West Virginia figures something out, you know, Nebraska and Missouri get it pretty quickly as well. If Texas discovers something new, you know, we make sure that the rest of our network has it. So um, we we do a very good job of making sure that uh, these men and women are armed with the latest and greatest information so they can make the best decisions possible. So Derek, how can listeners most be supportive? Obviously, uh, donors are always appreciated and important. Um, is there a role they can play by informing their local uh, state officials about the organization is recruitment of new financial officers still a priority? Absolutely. So on our website at sfof.com, there is a meet the team tab that they can see um, our financial officers um, and, and see kind of who, which states are represented. Um, if your state's not represented, we encourage you to reach out to their state, your state treasurer, state auditor, and ask them why. Um, you know, it may be a, a party affiliation. Yes, we have um, mostly Republican members, uh, but we would welcome any uh, any party that is willing to to uh, look at, at the free markets from a policy perspective critically and and engage in that debate. Um, and so, uh, so that's certainly one way. I would say on the our money, our values front, uh, tell us your ESG stories. There's also a downloadable form. Um, that talks about five questions you can ask your financial advisor that um, is literally asks, you know, the first question, have I invested in any funds that voted my shares in favor of racial, racial equity audits? Kind of just it goes down the list of, you know, things that you can ask your financial advisor and it may point you to want to move those funds from certain companies to some other company that, that more aligns with your personal uh, or, or political values. 
Um, of course, you know, financial contributions. Well, not just values, but your own financial interests. That's right. That's right. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, financial contributions are always welcome. Folks can donate online at SFOF.com. Um, they can follow us on Twitter SF, at SFOF underscore states. Um, we have a, a, a decent uh, Twitter following, and that's where most of our breaking news happens from our treasurer members. Um, and that we'll, we'll post it first there usually. Um, and uh, just would love to, uh, to hear from you. They can email me, Derek, at SFOF.com. Uh, and uh, and would love to engage with them any way they, that we can be helpful. Well, Derek, thanks for the work you're doing. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us about it. And and please, uh, let's stay in touch. We'll do everything we can with National Review and, and Capital Record listeners to stay on it. It's a subject that has many tentacles, and whether it is um, ESG and just corporate wokeism at large, uh, the cronyism involved with a lot of this, the moral hypocrisy. Um, we're, we're engaging in a lot of different ways and we'd love to keep working with you, holding our public finance officers to account and, and trying to, you know, use all to brand us all swords we can in this important battle. Thanks for the work you're doing, Derek. Thank you, David, for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you as always for listening to National Review's Capital Record. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Derek. Please look to support SFOF.com, the State Financial Officers Foundation, uh, our money, our values.com. They're doing wonderful things. I'm really grateful for his work. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And I hope you will send Capital Record to your friends, socialize it to your social media, uh, like us, and especially review us. If you'd be so kind as to write a quick review at your podcast player of choice, it really, really helps grow our traffic. Thanks for listening to National Review's Capital Record.